The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so good morning once again. And uh, uh, we are now finishing off, we finished off the... Um, two kinds of thoughts yesterday uh, and uh, now we're going to carry on with this next sutta which is called the simile of the lamp which is a very in many ways a very profound sutta especially the way it ends off uh, and uh, I think that's all quite interesting here and to see how the path kind of comes to the very end uh, is, is fascinating here but what is also interesting about this sutta is that it really is part of the uh, what is called the Anapanasati Sangyutta, the connected discourses on mindfulness of breathing. And so here we really have the whole process of mindfulness of breathing as part of the sutta. And I know that some people were asking about that, so I thought maybe this would be an opportunity to actually go through the process of mindfulness of breathing. It is not there in full in that sutta, so you won't be able to follow it uh, uh, on the um, paper that you have, but I will read it out anyway and explain it to you as we go along. Uh, and then you can look it up later on uh, if you wish. Uh, the main uh, sutta to look it up, if you want to see it, is found in the middling sayings uh, of the Buddha, number 118. It's known as the Anapanasati Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness of breathing. Yeah, that's kind of the main thing. And then there is all the connected discourses found in the Sangyutta Nikaya, uh, the 54th chapter. Yeah, and it's 20 discourses, all on just mindfulness of breathing. They look pretty much exactly the same, one sutta after the other. The kind of the container is a bit different. Uh, the story around is a bit different. Uh, and this sutta here is actually has many different interesting aspects to it, and that's why I picked it out. And one of the interesting aspects of this particular sutta, we'll see this later on, is that the Buddha says that this was his kind of frequent meditation before his awakening. Yeah. So the Buddha himself practiced anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, and that's of course very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that is, of course, also why he then recommends that that is what we should be doing here afterwards. Uh, he obviously had great success with that, that Anapanasati, and he specifically says that his awakening here was a result of practicing mindfulness of breathing here. That's kind of extraordinary. Yeah? The breath is such a humble thing here, thing that is always there with us. Uh, it is not mystical, it is not weird, it's not about using our imagination to create all kinds of you know, uh, wild and interesting ideas. It's so simple. It is so down to earth. It's very grounding and very, uh, you know, because it, it is, there's no flight or fancy or anything like that. Uh, and so it's, uh, and this I think is something that is kind of very through and through in the early Buddha's discourse that you see again and again, uh, this uh, idea of simplicity, of groundedness, of down to earth. Uh, this is such an important part of this. Uh, and uh, the whole idea of then using the breath as a foundation for your whole meditation practice, taking you all the way to awakening, uh, it fits in with a general um, tenor, the general um, feeling, the general idea, the way that the Dhamma is uh, explained in the early suttas. Uh, and uh, so this is why also I think it is very fascinating and interesting here. Uh, 
Whereas there are other kinds of meditation that are sometimes talked about, like the Kasinda meditations, for example. Some people like to do this because it kind of gives all, rise to all kinds of interesting uh, powers if you do it right. Uh, you've got to be careful with these, these kind of things. But uh, they're actually very on the very periphery uh, of uh, the early suttas. Uh, and uh, the focus is on the down-to-earth and kind of natural things, uh, which to me is actually very attractive. Uh, I like things to be down-to-earth. Uh. Uh, so let's um, have a look at this. Now, one of the let's just start off by uh, reading the sutta again. This is in the uh, SN Sangyutta Nikaya Connected Discourses, fifty-fourth uh, chapter, sutta number eight, is known as the simile of the lamp, padipu padipu upama, something like that. Uh, and the Buddha says, mendicants, uh, when samadhi or stillness due to mindfulness of breathing uh, is developed and cultivated, it is very fruitful and beneficial. Uh, how so? So uh, here we have this, uh, first of all, uh, you will notice this idea of samadhi or stillness due to mindfulness of breathing, uh, right? Uh, and that straight away shows you that the purpose of mindfulness of breathing is really to develop samadhi. Uh, yeah, this is kind of one of the main purposes of this practice. Actually, the purpose is to take you all the way to awakening, but this is one of the um, stage posts, if you like, on the way to awakening, yeah, giving rise to samadhi. Yeah. So, um, and uh, I think this is pretty much the, it's not actually the only one, but this is one of the main ways, um, probably the majority way of achieving samadhi, according to the suttas. Uh, so, uh, when it is developed and cultivated, it is very fruitful and beneficial. And when the Buddha doesn't usually mince his words, so when he says very fruitful and beneficial, he, that's exactly what he means. He usually means that it leads all the way to awakening. That's usually what these, these kind of expressions mean. They have like the, almost the highest kind of meaning you can imagine. And so how does this fit? Very briefly, I will explain how this fits together with the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, and this is very important because the Satipatthana Sutta is often considered to be the Buddha's main explanation of meditation. Yeah, Satipatthana Sutta found in the Majjhimanaka number oh. number ten uh, is called the the Sutta on the uh, applications of mindfulness or just mindfulness meditation or something like that. Uh, and is often kind of brought out as the main Sutta. It is also found in the Diganikaya number twenty two. 22? Yeah, I think so. Um, and uh, so it's found twice. And uh, this is, I think, one of the reasons why it is often considered so important, because it's found twice. But actually, the fact that it's found twice seems to be unique to the Pali canon. It has been duplicated at some point, but originally there seems to have been only one sutta. I think this is one of the first problems with uh, Satipatthana Sutta, is that we tend to elevate it above other suttas, even though there is actually no really good reason for that. It is just one sutta among others. It is just as important as all the other suttas, but neither more nor less. But it shouldn't really be taken out as something special. This is kind of the first thing I think is important to realize. And all of these meditation methods and systems that you find that are based exclusively on the Satipatthana Sutta Actually, it is problematic, yeah. because if you take one sutta out like that, uh, and you make that the mainstay, uh, you may actually uh, you may be um, biased 
yeah, the bias of that sutta, because no, no single sutta is able to present the full Dhamma, and so you will be biased by that sutta, and you will not really understand the full development of the practice in all its facets from all the various angles. And this is especially so because there is good evidence that the Satipatthana Sutta has been added to historically. There have been additional elements added to it. That makes it even more biased potentially in certain ways. So a good principle of the Dhamma is to actually have a fairly broad understanding of the suttas. I said earlier on that it was sufficient to know a single verse of Dhamma. And if you know that deeply, that's enough. And that is true in principle. But uh, sometimes it is not true, uh, especially when uh, the, the, we have reasons to think that the suttas may perhaps have been added to, and for that reason, it's not wrong to add to a sutta. But um, there, when you do that, uh, then um, it may lead to a sort of one-sided view of things, and that's kind of the problem. Uh. So, um, the um, one of the interesting things about the Satipatthana Sutta is that. Um, uh, when you read it, uh, it is not often obvious how it is to be done. Uh, so, for example, if you take the Satipatthana Sutta, it's divided into four parts. Yeah, the Kaya Nupassana, body contemplation, Vedra Nupassana, contemplation of feeling, Chitta Nupassana, contemplation of mind, and Dhamma Nupassana, which is not uh, entirely clear what that means, but it means something like uh, contemplation of uh, mental content or maybe principles, uh, yeah, principles of conditionality, something like that. Uh, it is not entirely clear. Um, Sudato has the translation, uh, contemplation of principles. And I think that's a very interesting translation, especially when you know the history of the sutta. Uh, and when you look at that, the first part of the sutta, you have the contemplation of body. Uh, the main aspect there is the contemplation of the 31 parts of the body. Uh, and that's kind of fairly straightforward. You can understand how you do that. Uh, yeah, 31 parts of the body means that you are aware of kind of the various parts of the heart, the lungs, the kind of the liver, uh, uh, kidneys or whatever. You have an idea of how the body is made up. Uh, and that's just an exercise in imagination. Uh, that is a first important point about Satipatthana. It's a, an imaginary, uh, imaginary exercise. It's about understanding, seeing your body for what it is. Uh, it is not about actually seeing these things. Uh, yeah? Sometimes people think Satipatthana is always about actually seeing things in real time. You know that it is there. But that needs psychic powers if you're going to actually see your <laughs> internal organs, right? Uh, and the way it is expressed, if you read the Satipatthana Sutta properly, it actually is expressed as an exercise of imagination, especially the cemetery contemplations are like that. So it is an exercise of the imagination, seeing your body. You don't need to actually see those organs. So that part of it is fairly straightforward. We know how to do that. Yeah, it is not, it is not, it, it kind of is obvious. But when it comes to the next part of the Satipatthana, which is the Vedana Nupasana, it says there that you know the painful feelings, you know the happy feelings, you know the neither painful nor happy, like neutral feelings, you know the worldly feelings, in other words, the feelings that are connected with the five senses, and you know the spiritual feelings, called the Niramisa Sukha or Niramisa Dukkha, the spiritual feelings and the worldly feelings. So it gives you all of these feelings uh, that you're supposed to know. Uh, but exactly 
how do you know them? How do you go about this? Do you just sit there, close your eyes, and kind of focus on feelings? Is that what you do? And that seems to me is a possibility. But we should that this is where we need to delve into the suttas to find out if the Buddha gives further advice on the context for understanding these feelings. Yeah, is there a context? And if there is a context elsewhere that explains how to do this, then that is what we should take as the Buddha's advice on how to do these contemplations. That is the Vedana Then we have the Chitta Nupasana, contemplation of the mind. And it's a similar kind of thing here. It says that you know the mind that has greed, you know the mind without greed, you have the mind with ill will, the mind without ill will, the deluded mind, the mind without delusion, the mind that is large, the mind that is uh, uh, unsurpassed, uh, the mind that is contracted, and all of these kind of things you find in there. But again, it just says you know these mental states, uh, but it doesn't say exactly the context. Uh, you know, it, because sometimes if you just are aware of the mental content as you move around in the world, uh, it is kind of hard to keep the focus. It's hard not to get distracted because you don't really have, a, again, a um, context for this. Uh, so again, we should ask the same question. Uh, what is the context for this? Uh, do we find a context elsewhere? Uh, come lastly to the Dhamma Nupasana, contemplation of Dhammas. Uh, it talks about the contemplating the five hindrances, uh, contemplating the seven factors of awakening. Uh, right? Again, there is no context for knowing these things. Uh, and this is why it is so interesting when you then come to the Anapanasati Sutta, mindfulness of breathing, it gives that context. It tells you there that all of these four satipatthanas, body contemplation, contemplation of feeling, contemplation of mind, contemplation of dhammas, all four are fulfilled by mindfulness of breathing. If you do mindfulness of breathing in the right way, it, the whole thing is fulfilled. So that means that all you have to do is watch the breath. You don't have to worry too much about other details of Satipatthana. And this is very counterintuitive. If you go to many of the Satipatthana uh, courses, uh, they will tell you you start off by watching the breath, then you watch the feelings in the body. And why do they say that? And the reason they say that is because if you go to the Satipatthana Sutta, it only has mindfulness of breathing under contemplation of the body. The rest, there is no mention of, of uh, mindfulness of breathing. So that is why they do it that way. And then when you then do mindfulness of feelings, then you let go of the breath and you just feel the feelings in the body and that kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, the problem here is that uh, that whole idea that mindfulness of breathing only belongs with the body, uh, that seems already to be a distortion of the Satipatthana Sutta. That is not original. The original is only the 31 parts of the body. The original idea is that mindfulness of breathing covers all Satipatthana. That is the main way of doing Satipatthana practice. Uh, and to me, that is such a beautiful way of thinking about it because it's so simple it is so straightforward we don't have to go into great complexities about what satipatthana is we don't have to do this enormous manuals on satipatthana practice actually all you have to do is come back to the very humble straightforward breath it is still not 
necessarily very straightforward. It is still not very easy because then you find that your mindfulness of breathing stops at a certain point. It doesn't go deeper. So then we have to look at our defilements and all of these kind of things. So it's still not uh, very simple or very easy necessarily. Uh, but at least we have a very clear idea of what we are supposed to do, uh, which is very, very helpful. Uh. And so this is uh, how Satipatthana and mindfulness of breathing come together. Uh. And I would always say, if you're going to do these meditation practices, uh, go back to the word of the Buddha. What is the main way that he recommends doing these things? Uh, and to me, it is obvious that the way the Buddha recommends Satipatthana practice is through mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. That is the main that is the main point. Uh, this does not mean that um, all other ways of doing it are wrong necessarily. Uh, those other ways, if they work and the people have good results and they get into samadhi and all of this kind of thing, they can they can certainly follow those other ways. Uh, but uh, if you have any doubts and if you feel that you're not making progress or whatever, uh, then come back to the way the Buddha talks about these things. Uh, and then, of course, when you do the satipatthana in this way, then uh, mindfulness of breathing fulfills those satipatthanas, which then in turn fulfill the seven factors of awakening, which in turn fulfill vidya vimutti, liberation and insight. Uh, and then that takes you all the way to the end of the path through this very humble breath. And this is exactly what the Buddha here is talking about. Uh, so uh, because of this, uh, let's have a little bit more look at uh, the... Uh, mindfulness of breathing here so we get a bit more idea what it is about and then those of you who have asked for this yeah you also we take that we always we always kind of take into account what people want because it's nice to and especially since we had a few occasions when people asked it's a nice idea to go have a look at this so this sutta will probably take the rest of the day just to do this sutta but that's okay because we have a, i think we have a bit of extra time so that's great so uh, now, how uh, how so, right? How is this cultivated? Uh, and uh, this is what the Buddha says. Uh, it is when a mendicant, uh, gone to the wilderness uh, or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, uh, sits down cross-legged, uh, sets their body straight uh, and establishes mindfulness in front of them. Uh, just mindful, they breathe in. Mindful, they breathe out out. That is the beginning here. This is the starting point. This is what you do before you even do any mindfulness of breathing here. And you will notice here, what some of the points here are actually very interesting. One of them is the idea that you are gone to a wilderness, to the foot of a tree or to an empty hut. And uh, this is the standard way, one of the standard ways that the Buddhas talk about, the suttas talk about seclusion. Uh, so what this means is that uh, mindfulness of breathing, because it takes you all the way to awakening, uh, it is a very profound practice. Uh, and these profound practices should ideally be done in seclusion. Uh, that's why going on a retreat and hopefully soon the new retreat center at Newbury will be finished. Uh, you can have a bit more seclusion and more like a residential retreat. Uh, that is like the beginning of seclusion uh, when you go to a retreat center. Uh, coming out of your ordinary environment, your ordinary home, uh, going somewhere where you can kind of be more, more secluded, ideally having your own room uh, eventually. Uh, 
uh, and this is the beginning of seclusion. The further down seclusion is kind of maybe coming to stay in a monastery for some time, having a hut for yourself, uh, and uh, these kind of things. Uh, yeah, or like some people do, living on a property for on the on their own, uh, just far away from the rest of the world. That some uh, some people do as well. Uh, so all of these things are ways of seclusion. Uh, and so seclusion is really important. Uh, yeah, this is one of the things here, yeah. and this is what you start to see when you start to read the suttas. Uh, it's interesting when you read the suttas, you realize how biased you are very often. You read them through a certain lens, through a certain filter, through a certain perspective, which is the conditioning that you have. And what you see in the suttas will depend enormously on that conditioning. And sometimes your conditioning changes because it's always changing. And suddenly the suttas look very different. I've noticed that so many times in my own life because I read the suttas quite regularly. This is one of the things I love about these retreats. It, it gives me the excuse to read more suttas. <laughs> and uh, because there's always a new depth to this, there's always more to be, until you are fully enlightened, there's always more to be read in these suttas. Uh, and um, then I, at some point, I started to see seclusion. Uh, and then I started to see seclusion everywhere in the suttas, right? Because suddenly your bias has changed. Something has changed within you. And then when you start to look for this word, words, are, words like patisalana is a word that is used for seclusion. And it occurs everywhere. Viveka is another word. And you start to see this. And then you start to understand how fundamental it is for the path. And, uh, but at the right time, yeah, you have to be ready. First of all, you have to establish mindfulness. So it happens through seclusion. Seclusion of the body, then seclusion of the mind, as a consequence of that seclusion of the body. One thing leading to the next one. So um, why is that so important? Well, because the path of Buddhism is a path of renunciation. It's a path of giving up our attachment to the senses. And that attachment to the senses, uh, first of all, it happens then through seclusion of the body, moving away from that sensory world that always drags you back in in, uh, in a certain way. And that happens usually then in the forest, in the wilderness somewhere. Uh, that is where you get away from that world. And then that allows you, that physical seclusion allows the mental seclusion, the citta viveka, kaya viveka leading to citta viveka. So this is the idea here. So very interesting already that mindfulness of breathing is spoken about in this way. And that does not mean, I, I, you know, it's not doesn't mean you cannot do mindfulness of breathing at home. You can, but it probably won't have the same effect. You won't become enlightened straight away at home. It will take a bit, of, take a bit more time at home. But it can still do it. The first stages of this path can still be done, right? So it doesn't mean you should... Forget about the entire thing here. And then, of course, you sit down, right? This is the next thing here. So mindfulness of breathing is a sitting meditation. It is not a walking meditation or anything like that. Walking meditation, we should do other things. And so it is, again, it shows that it is profound. You need a stable position where you can go really deep. This is kind of the point here. So you sit down because this leads to samadhi, it leads to the jhanas and all of these kind of things. You need a posture that is suitable for those deep meditations. Sometimes people talk about doing breath meditation while walking. Maybe. I Personally, I don't know. I Personally, I wouldn't do it, but maybe. But the Buddha recommends sitting. I think that is really the critical thing here. And then it says cross-legged. 
palankang abuditva or something like that. Uh, uh, is that necessary? Uh, and uh, I think when the Buddha says it, uh, it's important to take it into account. Uh, so maybe it is the ideal posture. Uh, sitting cross-legged, once you get used to it, is quite nice. Yeah, it feels solid, it feels steady, uh, it feels like a nice posture. But I don't think this one is uh, absolutely required. Uh, I think here we have to... This is just my opinion, really, and maybe uh, hopefully I haven't got it completely wrong. But um, the the idea here is that uh, in in the old, you know, ancient older times, furniture was not as common as it is these days. They did have furniture at the time of the Buddha. We know that because it talks about chairs and benches and these kind of things. Uh, but it was more common for people to sit on the floor uh, in those days. It seems, uh, and people were very comfortable sitting on the floor. Uh, perhaps more comfortable than they would otherwise be. And so the main point here to me is really to be at ease and comfortable. That is what matters the most. Uh, because again, remember the Buddhist idea of the middle way, the middle way, the very first sutta of the Buddha, the Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta, the setting in motion, the wheel of the Dhamma. He starts off by talking about the middle way, yeah, the, uh, the Majjhima Patipadaha, the middle way. And that middle way is really a way where the body disappears. The body is not important. It's the middle way between, on the one hand, torturing the body, because torturing the body was very common at that time in India. Yeah? And on the other hand, the indulgence in the body, the two sides. And so we want to avoid that. And torturing the body, if you sit long periods of time in pain, well, you are torturing the body. So please don't do that. And uh, the best way to avoid that uh, is to sit in a way that is comfortable for you. Use a nice bench like the one Frank has over here, nice little meditation bench. Uh, Sit with your back against the wall if that's comfortable for you. Sit on a chair if that works. Uh, And even sometimes, you can even try lying down meditation sometimes uh, and see if that works for you. Uh, If you can sit cross-legged, make sure you're comfortable sitting cross-legged. You have enough cushions and all of these kind of things. Uh, It is not about being the coolest meditator, yeah, sitting kind of really with full lotus and these kind of things. Uh, that's kind of missing the point. Uh, so, uh, but sometimes it's funny how the sense of self can kind of get its, sneak its way into all things, right? Uh, even into the spiritual path. Yeah, okay, I'm going to sit the longest, yeah, I'm going to sit the right way, and all of these other people, they are kind of, they are lesser because they don't sit the right way, or something like that. It's, it kind of, the sense of self has this tendency to sneak its way in everywhere. Uh, so we have to be careful with that, uh, that um, dodgy character entering our mind and uh, <laughs> doing bad things to us. Uh. So uh, remember the Buddhist middle way. It's a very important uh, teaching. Very first thing the Buddha talks about uh, in the suttas. Uh, then you have the idea of setting the body straight, ujjukayang uh, panidaya. And uh, uh, the idea here is that when the body is straight, you have more clarity of mindfulness. Uh, but again, it's about the right time and place. Uh, Sometimes straight away in the beginning, it can be right to lean against the wall and to relax. Remember, the point is to do things in the right sequence. And mindfulness only arises usually after some time. First of all, you need to relax. You need to let go of the past and the future. Uh, you need to uh, allow the, you know, the clarity of the mind to come up and all of these kind of things. And then the straightness of the body. You will feel the right time for straightening the body. You don't necessarily, if you have to force things too much, then you know it is not going to work out usually. So everything, right time and right place. And then the very last point here is the most important thing of all. 
uh, establishing mindfulness in front or establishing mindfulness. What, is, what does he have here? Yeah, in front of them is what he has here. Yeah. So um, this is the most important thing here. Uh, because there is no breath meditation, essentially this is what this says, without having established mindfulness first. Uh, and and this is, you know, one of the biggest problems in meditation circles is this idea that you come into a meditation center and you're told straight away to watch the breath. Uh, you have never even kept the five precepts in your life, you haven't done anything, you have no idea about anything, uh, just watch your breath. Uh, and it's not what the Buddha is saying. The Buddha is saying that the mindfulness of breathing is the seventh factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Yeah, it comes way down. The Noble Eightfold Path is a causal sequence. It's a conditioned sequence. One thing leading to the next one. It starts with the right view. Then you have the right purpose. You have all the morality factors. Then you have the purification of the mind through right effort. Then comes mindfulness of breathing here. Yeah, and so if you come straight off the street and you watch your breath, uh, the chances are it's not going to work out uh, unless you are some of these people with lots of good karma from the past and you're ready for this. Uh, the majority of people won't be able to do it. Or if you do it, uh, you're going to have to use willpower or you're going to have to do all of these kind of things. Uh, and you are kind of going, it's going to be very uncomfortable. Uh, and you're going to go on the red retreat once in your life uh, and you're never going to come back again because it was so incredibly unpleasant. Uh, because you had to force yourself, you had to mess up your mind, you had to do all these kind of things. Uh, and it really is, uh, you know, it's going to be very counterproductive. Uh. And I have met people in my life who said, uh, I've been on one retreat, uh, it was so incredibly unpleasant, uh, I've never suffered so much, I've felt so tense, so much pain in body and mind, I'm never ever going to go back on a meditation retreat ever again. Uh. And I say to them, but wait a minute, uh, yeah, there is people, other people who teach differently. Yeah, Ajahn Brahm says, just relax, enjoy, feel the bliss. Uh, don't you want to come for that? No, never again. I've had enough. Uh, <laughs> this is it. Yeah, I <laughs> and so people are traumatized by these meditation retreats, right? Uh, there is a small percentage who enjoy it because they have done meditation before or because they have the right karma. Yeah, so for those people, it's great. Uh, but for the majority of people, uh, they just can't deal with it. This is too difficult, too hard. Why? They're not following the instructions of the Buddha. That is why. Uh, they're following some other kind of instructions. Uh, and uh, that is problematic. Yeah. So this is why when I teach meditation retreat, I don't even say much about the breath meditation. I just say relax, enjoy, you know, sit in that armchair and just kind of allow things to be, don't control things, nudge the mind in the right direction, enjoy the good company, bring up some happiness in the meditation, let go of the future. The future is not interesting anyway. How you create the future is not to think about it, but to be peaceful in the moment, forgive the past. These are the things that lead to mindfulness. And these are the things you want to establish. If you never watch the breath, that's perfectly fine, as long as you do these other things. But if you do these other things, there will come a point when you just naturally watch the breath. It's as if mindfulness arises. And of course, if you are present, one of the things that is always here is the breath. So you can't really avoid watching the breath. Yeah, and suddenly the breath is there, okay, then you're doing mindfulness of breathing. You never even tried to watch the breath. The breath, this is the idea of the breath coming to you. Yeah, not going. The moment you go to watch the breath, you are using willpower. But if the breath comes to you, it's like, it's just natural. It's just a process going on. 
So these are the things I have learned from Ajahn Brahm over the years, and I have, I have uh, tried to resist his teachings uh, year in, year out, yeah, desperately wanting to say, no, willpower is required. Uh, and I've gradually succumbed, and I've understood that actually Ajahn Brahm has been right all along. Uh, yeah, it's taken time because I'm really stubborn. Uh, most of us are a bit stubborn. Uh, we, most of us, because... Uh, you know, it's the sense of self, I suppose. Uh, and gradually you realize that someone else has much more wisdom than you have. Okay, okay, so I better, I better take it on board. Uh, and of course, the person who has the most wisdom is the Buddha himself. Uh, so these are really important instructions. So build up that mindfulness, first of all. When the mindfulness is there, is the breath meditation happens all by itself, uh, then you are on the right track. Uh, and of course... It is not just in uh, uh, meditation that we build up mindfulness. Mindfulness is something that you build up through what you, how you live your life in general. Uh, yeah? And uh, one of the things that I've been saying on this retreat, you don't build up mindfulness by just by being mindful in ordinary life. This is kind of one of, I think, another of those myths in uh, Buddhism is that just by being mindful in ordinary life, uh, you somehow become more mindful by being mindful. Uh, and uh, it is true, it is good to be mindful, but you have to use it in the right way. Uh, this has kind of been one of the other points. And one of the important ways to use that mindfulness is to make sure that you have purity of conduct, uh, that you are kind, that you really have metta, that you have compassion, and that you build these things up continuously, make them more and more strong in your ordinary life. That is when mindfulness is well used. Uh, uh, just to be mindful, just to, okay, washing dishes, washing dishes, washing dishes, uh, drying dishes, drying dishes, vacuuming, 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 uh, chilling on the sofa, uh, <laughs> whatever it is, uh, this kind of just the idea of you being aware of what you're doing uh, is not very angry, angry. Oh, no, wait a minute. Uh, maybe that, that's, so that is not really enough. Uh, uh, it is the purification process that really is important. And then when you purify yourself in this way, that is how mindfulness is created. The less defilements you have, the more powerful your mindfulness will be. Right view is a similar kind of thing. The aligning our perceptions with the way the Buddha saw the world is another thing that is very important. So these are the things we develop, and they are developed through mindfulness, because mindfulness is what tells you what's going on. Mindfulness is what allows you to cultivate the mind in the right way. Then you're on the right track, yeah. So focus on virtue rather than mindfulness. Uh, and if the idea of virtue and kindness, or just fo focus on kindness, if that is at the back of your mind, uh, then that is a kind of mindfulness. Uh, it's a mindfulness that comes with a particular set of instructions. Uh, and if you understand how important th th this is, uh, then that mindfulness will be actually very powerful. Uh, it will be always activated at the back of your mind, uh, and then you will live in that way. Uh, and... Um, some people live like that. Uh, yeah, they are ever conscious uh, of whether they are living well or not. Uh, and that is kind of how you make progress on this path. Uh. So, yes, mindfulness, long-term establishing of it by living well in ordinary life, and then the actual establishing of it uh, when we are doing meditation practice. Uh, these are the two aspects here. Yeah. So then, once you have established mindfulness in front of you, in front of you means in this time and this space, uh, yeah? It does, does not necessarily mean the tip of the nose. You, if you want to watch the tip of the nose, you can, but uh, uh, the meaning seems to be a bit more broader than that. Uh, then, now you are ready for the mindfulness of breathing. Yeah? 
And the Buddha said, just mindful, they breathe in. Mindful, they breathe out. So, uh, uh, fairly straightforward. You will notice the little word just there. Is that word significant? Maybe it is significant. Yeah, just mindful. Why doesn't it say mindful they breathe in, mindful they breathe out? Why does it say just there? And uh, the Pali word is eva. It's a tiny little word. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't mean all that much. It's just like uh, what they call a filler word, uh, a word which kind of makes the sentence more well-rounded or something like that. Uh, all languages have filler words. Uh, but uh, it also has a meaning. And the meaning is uh, uh, has a couple of different meanings. But here, the obvious meaning here is just. Uh, and uh, I think... It is hard to really be 100% sure about this, but uh, the most obvious meaning here of just mindful uh, is that all you have to do is to be mindful. Don't have to use willpower. Don't have to force yourself in one way or another. Uh, you just, mindfulness has been established. Uh, now you allow the process to happen. Uh, and this is what you find other places in the suttas. I think I mentioned the Chaitanya Sutta, I mentioned this on every single retreat, uh, where the Buddha specifically says uh, this is not to be done uh, through an act of intention or an act of will. Na Chaitanya Karaniya. Chaitanya is the will, is the intention. So this is not to be done by an act of intention. It is according to nature. Dhammata. Dhammata means according to nature. And so the process of meditation is a natural occurring thing. If you allow it to proceed. And if you try to use the willpower, well, what happens if you use willpower? Well, if you try to use willpower on natural things, you destroy them. So uh, the will should really be left to one side. And that is kind of, so mindfulness itself is enough. So uh, that is the background. Yeah, mindful, mindful you breathe in, mindful you breathe out. Uh, now come the actual instructions. Yeah, now come the 16 steps of Anapanasati, and we're going to have a look at those now. This is not, unfortunately, in the uh, in this uh, papers here because uh, I didn't really know whether I was going to go through the whole thing. So this is a new development on this retreat. <laughs> so we're gonna I'm going to read it from somewhere else because uh, it's not there. But don't worry too much. I'm going to go very slowly, so you'll be able to follow quite easily. I think. Yeah. All right, so this is the um, taken from Majjhimanikaya 118, which is the Anapanasati Sutta. And um, again, this is Bhantasujato's uh, translation. Huh? And so I will read out the first, the 16 steps. I will read them out in four, four in the groups of four, uh, uh, four tetrads, as they say. Uh, and then I will uh, discuss them uh, uh, each one as we go along. So... Breathing in heavily, they know I am breathing in heavily. Sometimes also called the long breath. The Pali idiom is the long breath. In English idiom, heavy breath seems to be reasonable. Breathing out heavily, they know I am breathing out heavily. Yeah. Breathing in lightly, they know I'm breathing in lightly. So here the Pali idiom is short. Rasa. Breathing out lightly, they know I am breathing out lightly. They practice like this. Uh, 
I'm, I'll breathe in, experiencing the whole body. They practice like this, I will breathe out, experiencing the whole body. They practice like this, I will breathe in, stilling the physical process. They practice like this, I will breathe out, stilling the physical process. So those are the first four of the 16 steps of Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. And this is equivalent to the body contemplation in the, in the Satipatthana Sutta. So if you do this fully, you are fulfilling the body contemplation in the Satipatthana Sutta. And you may wonder why, how is it that this fulfills the body contemplation? And this is kind of a, an interesting point. Uh, what does it mean? What does it mean to fulfill the body contemplation? Uh, and what it means, remember the purpose of the body contemplation in Satipatthana Sutta is really to help us to let go of the body. Uh, that is the purpose. That's why we do the 31 parts, because the 31 parts gives you a bit of distance to the body. It makes the body less interesting. The reason why we consider the body to be beautiful is because we have skin. Take off the skin, the body is not so interesting. You know what I mean? Try to, try to imagine your own body without skin. I don't know if you have seen this kind of... We had many years ago, we had this kind of German, crazy German scientist, Günther von Hagen. And he had this, this exhibition called Körperfelten or something like that, which means body worlds. Yeah? And he had de-skinned all these human bodies. And so you had all these bodies without skin on them, right? And kind of all the organs, everything was showing. And they had this kind of special technique, so the bodies were intact. They, they weren't rotting, you know, that at least they weren't rotting right there. But uh, he had somehow used some kind of silicon infusion into the bodies. The body was kept intact. And it's very interesting. The skin is such a thin little thing, right? Uh, take that off the body. The body looks very, very different. Take that off. Uh, and so this was, uh, I don't know why there's always the Germans who do this kind of weird things, but they are, <laughs> there's something about the Germans there, really. And uh, so, um, uh, and it's actually very fascinating. And you start to realize that the body, uh, it is only superficially attractive. Uh, and you look at the body for what it actually is, it is not very interesting at all. Uh. And so this is the idea here. It gives you a more neutral idea of the body. And it's not that a body is terrible or awful or whatever. The idea is not to have a sense of revulsion or detesting of the body. The idea is just to overcome that attraction that we normally have. And so this is the idea. So uh, same thing with the four elements meditation someone mentioned before. Yeah, If you just see that this body is just part of nature, after a while, how, you know, how interesting is it? It comes from nature, goes back to nature, it isn't always exchanging elements with the nature at all times, uh, actually it loses some of the attraction of that body. Yeah. And so that is the purpose. Now, if you look at this particular sequence of steps that we are seeing here, knowing the long breath, the short breath, the full breath, and then calming down the physical processes, uh, of course the physical processes at this point is mostly the breath. Uh, yeah, Because as these things are calming down, uh, the breath is the main thing that remains. Uh, and uh, so at this point, uh, when the breath becomes very peaceful, it is being calmed down and we are ready for the next state, which is the contemplation of feelings, the bliss starting to arise. Uh, we are already giving up the body to a very large extent. Uh, the moment bliss arises, uh, piti arises in the mind, at that point we are already moving on to the spiritual aspects uh, of meditation practice because piti is a spiritual experience 
We're starting to leave the world of the body behind. And so this is equivalent to watching the 31 parts of the body because you, at this point you have already succeeded to a large extent in leaving the body behind. Yeah, so this is how the first four factors of Anapanasati is equivalent to body contemplation in Satipatthana because it has already, to a large extent, fulfilled that purpose of leaving the body behind. Now you're moving on to the spiritual side of things, the piti, the sukha, and these kind of things. This does not all, it's not always enough. Sometimes you need to do a bit more body contemplation to let go of it completely. Yeah? Even though you're moving on to the spiritual feelings, the body is still there in the background. So it can still be helpful sometimes to do some body contemplation. But you have done the main purpose of what it is about. So this is how these two things kind of fit together. Yeah? So let's have a look at these ste- uh, steps in a bit more detail. So it starts off by breathing in heavily, you know that you are breathing in heavily. Yeah, you're already mindful, so you just know what is going on. Breathing out heavily, you know you're breathing out heavily. Then you have breathing in lightly, breathing out lightly. So what does this mean? Does it mean that we should deliberately take a long breath and a short breath? No. Yeah, we have already seen that being deliberate is not part of this. We should just be aware of the breath in whatever way it is. So the idea of the breath being light or heavy or short or long is just a way for us to it's just a way of being aware of the breath to ensuring that you are aware of it you know every breath whether it's short or long is not important what matters is that you are aware of the breath saying that it is short or long is just a way of ensuring that you are aware of it that's really all it means. It does not mean that uh, you know you should make it long or short, or or that this is a very important part of the breath, anything like that. It's just a way of m- ensuring awareness. And then, of course, there's a tendency for the breath as you calm down to become shorter. The reason why the breath is long and heavy to begin with is because there's more need for oxygen. And as you calm down all the functions of the body calm down, there's less need for the oxidants, so things start to calm down. So this is already the process of calming down a little bit uh, when you go from the heavy breath uh, to the light breath. Uh. And so then you stay with this breath. Uh. And as you stay with the breath, uh, gradually your mindfulness becomes stronger. Uh. Yeah, and, and what that means is that your ability to be aware expands. Uh. And this is why the third stage here is the uh, awareness of the whole breath. Uh, it is here called the whole body. I just uh, read it out, uh, experiencing the whole body. Uh, but uh, the body here seems to be a reference to the breath. Uh, yeah? So you experience the whole body of the breath. Your mindfulness is expanding. You're seeing more of what is going on uh, and that is already quite nice. Yeah? It doesn't take long before this breath meditation becomes nice. As long as it is natural, as long as you're not forcing it, uh, yeah, this expansion of awareness is already kind of a pleasant thing to happen. Huh? Um, so here it is called, you practice like this, before it says you know this. And the reason why it says practice now is because it takes time for this to happen. Huh? You have to stay with the breath for a while, then the full awareness happens. Huh? So when it says the whole body, why should we think of it as the whole breath? Uh, Because this may sound like I'm kind of reading things into the sutta. 
which is not there. And it's quite common among certain medita meditation groups to say this actually means you should focus on the whole body, the physical body, not on the whole breath. Uh, so I need to justify that a little bit. Uh, yeah? Everything needs to be justified. If you just say things without justifying it, then it becomes dodgy. Yeah? And so the reason how you justify this is because further down in this sutta, and let me just bring that up now, uh, further down in the sutta, it um, says that uh, uh, when you are doing the uh, this kind of meditation, you are doing body meditation. And the Buddha says, for I say that in-breaths and out-breaths, uh, they are an aspect of the body. Yeah. So in other words, these are an aspect of the body. So when you talk about the whole body, you are actually talking about uh, the breath meditation. These are not different from the body, they are part of the body. So here the whole body means this idea of the breath. The breath is an aspect of the body. Am I reading the right thing now? I'm still a bit unsure now. Um, yeah, so the, so the breath is one body among the bodies, another way of saying this. So the idea here is that the breath is body. The two are not really separable. And so this is part of the body contemplation. Not sure how clear that was, but anyway, it's close enough. Uh, so that is one argument. The other argument why this refers to the full breath is that we are doing breath meditation. It's called anapanasati. So it seems a bit weird. We should go from the breath then to the whole body and then back to the breath again later on. It's a bit strange. So because it is breath meditation, it also makes sense. Third reason, the commentaries also say that it refers to breath meditation. Fourth reason, Ajahn Brahm says it refers to the breath. Yeah. Ajahn Brahm, he's my kind of go-to. When if he says something, I, I, these days I, I argue less and I say sadhu usually these days because I, I realize that all that argument was a waste of time in the early years. So now it's more, okay, just go, just go with it. And uh, so all of these things to me point towards this actually referring to the, to the breath. But again, how much does it really matter and the answer is that in the end, uh, if, you f if you prefer to read this as watching or being aware of the whole body uh, rather than the breath, if it works and it leads to peace and you come back to the breath later on, you take it deeper or whatever, uh, actually it doesn't matter all that much. What really matters uh, is that you're getting good results. You are becoming more peaceful. Uh, and it also matters that you do come back to the breath later on uh, because the breath is what takes you all the way uh, to the end of this path. Uh. So we don't really want to make argue too much, and this is always painful, and sometimes it is good to see the, the other side, uh, you know, of the, uh, the, how the other side practice, uh, and how that may also lead to the same results, uh, and not to be too dogmatic about what is right and what is wrong, because it just leads to more arguments. Uh, so whatever way, if it works, it works. That is really, at the end of the day, what matters. Still, my preferred understanding is that it refers to the breath. To me, that is what makes sense in the context. So your mindfulness is expanding. You're already starting to enjoy this meditation, right? You can feel that there's a progress being made there. Not because you are doing it, not because you are making it happen, because this is what naturally happens when you just stay with the breath and you are enjoying the experience. And then as you continue this natural thing, 
Yeah, it's called training here. But really, training just means that you're staying with it. Uh, as you are enjoying this, the, ex- the expanding awareness, together with that expanding of awareness, uh, or as this expansion carries on, uh, it also starts to become more peaceful. Uh, yeah, and this is kind of the next stage here of the meditation. Uh, everything is calming down. Uh, and this is why it's called the stilling of the physical process. Uh, Pasambayang Kaya Sankarang. Kaya Sankarang is a word for the breath in the suttas. Uh, literally means the physical activity or the activity of the body. Uh, that's why he has physical process here. Uh, and Pasambayang uh, is the calming down, yeah, the, the um, tranquilizing uh, of the physical processes. The breath is becoming more subtle. Uh, yeah, the breath is calming down. Uh, and now things are really starting to become enjoyable. Uh, Many of you will have had these kind of experiences, but the breath is very beautiful, very subtle. Uh, there may not be any bliss or happiness in the mind yet, uh, but already there's that peace uh, that is coming at this point. It's already very, uh, quite, uh, uh, very attractive in many ways. Uh, so uh, this is the beginning. Uh, this is the body contemplation. Uh, this is how this whole pr- process starts out. Uh, um, then... Uh, once that body contemplation is established, uh, that is when we come to the contemplation, the next one, uh, that is the Vedana Nupasana, the contemplation of feelings is the next one. Uh, and um, um, uh, so the contemplation, I'm not going to read it now because I'm gonna, it's too involved to read now. I want to read it out this afternoon because it's going to be too, too much information for the last few minutes. Uh, but uh, the idea when we move from the body contemplation to the Vedana Pasana, we're moving much more into the realm of the spiritual. Uh, because the feelings that we're talking about now are piti and sukha. And piti are like these waves going through the body, this bliss going deeper and deeper. Uh, and it starts to enter into different reality. Uh. And one of the things about moving from the physical to the spiritual, uh, sometimes it can be tricky uh. Yeah, it can be tricky. How do we actually give rise to these kind of feelings? Uh, and this is one of the reasons why the Buddha actually spends quite a lot of time in the suttas uh, describing how to give rise to joy in meditation, how to get inspired with things. Uh, we have looked at before at the Buddha Nusati, Dhamma Nusati, Sangha Nusati, Chaga Nusati, Sila Nusati, Devta Nusati. Okay, for those of you who don't speak Pali, just again, uh, recollection of the Buddha, recollection of the Dhamma, recollection of the Sangha recollection of your good conduct, recollection of your generosity, and recollection of the devatas, yeah, which is kind of interesting here. Yeah. So these are all the ways to basically give rise to joy on this path. Uh. So sometimes when we move from the worldly here, which is the breath, uh, to the spiritual, we need something. We need to nudge the mind a little bit uh, to give it that ability to enjoy spiritual feelings. Uh. And this is why this is an important part of this process. Uh. So if we have earlier on developed the idea of having the Buddha as your teacher, uh, I spoke about this before, how you can do that in certain ways. Uh, if you have built up that perception, uh, and remember this is again the idea of building up perceptions in our practice. Uh, if you have developed that perception, so you have a powerful feeling about the Buddha, uh, then all you have to do at this particular point uh, is often just to remind yourself yeah, very gently of the Buddha, and straight away the inspiration may come. Uh, or you have developed the idea of how you are living well. 
Yeah, and you remind yourself of the fact that I'm living well. That's little nudging of the mind uh, that reminds yourself that can be enough because you're already very peaceful. Uh, the mind is already quite pure. A small nudging of the mind can be enough to give rise to this joy uh, yeah, at this particular point. Uh, if it doesn't happen, uh, there are other things you can do. It may be that there's still too much attachment to the body. Uh, yeah, and moving on to joy because it is a spiritual feeling, uh, that attachment to the body may still be a hindrance. Uh, if that is the case, uh, then in those circumstances you can go back to the ideas that you find in the Satipatthana Sutta and contemplate the 31 parts of the body maybe, uh, getting a bit more neutrality about the body. Use the four element contemplation, uh, yeah, and just kind of getting a bit more distance uh, to the body and the five senses in that way. That can also be sufficient at this particular point to allow that transition from the physical things uh, to the mental happiness and joy. Uh. So here it is really up to you yeah, to see what works for you. Uh. One of the things that I recommend uh, is the recollection of your Kalyanamitas because it's easier to deal with people around you than the Buddha is still seem, may seem too far away for many people, may not give rise to that joy here. Uh. Yeah, so that case, just the idea that you are in this wonderful community, there are monastics, there are lay people, everyone practicing in the same way, pulling in the same direction, feeling the sense of gratitude to the world, yeah, that you have this opportunity. It is not at all obvious that you should have this opportunity. Having a general gratitude for all the blessings in your life. You have enormous number of blessings, otherwise you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be living well. You wouldn't be doing all of these things. You are inclining the in the right direction. Yay, I'm living well. Wow, what a wonderful thing. It all comes together in this beautiful way. And you start to really appreciate all of these things as a consequence of thinking in this way. This is where you kind of bridge this gap from the physical to the spiritual uh, by encouraging you, nudging the mind, not thinking an enormous amount, because if you think an enormous amount, uh, you will squash these beautiful, uh, de de um, delightful feelings. Uh, but just a gentle movement in that direction, uh, then uh, we can make that jump from the physical to the spiritual. Uh. This afternoon, uh, I'm going to come back to this. Uh, I'm going to discuss more about the Vedana Nupassana, Chitta Nupassana, and all the way. Uh, so uh, if you are one of those who want to hear more about uh, Anapanasati and the power of the mindfulness of breathing, please don't miss out this afternoon. <laughs> two o'clock, it's all happening. It's going to be revealed at two o'clock. Uh, so I hope to see you back then. In the meantime, please have a wonderful lunch together. Uh, and uh, let's just finish off by paying respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. <laughs>